right, it is uh, the 19th of January, Tuesday, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, joined, as always, by the in absentia Stephanie Steitzer-Holscher. Stephanie, how you doing? I'm doing well. I can see the reflection of palm trees blowing in the wind <laughs> in your windows, and I'm very angry about it. <laughs> uh, it's, we're going we're gonna to have a shorter than normal news segment today because uh, we're going to... We, actually just recorded a pretty lengthy conversation with the uh, recently uh, retired uh, former editor of the Courier Journal, Rick Green, uh, one of Stephanie's former bosses, uh, kind of about journalism, where we're at uh, in the world in general. Uh, really interesting listen. Um, we recorded it before before we're doing the news. So if anything sounds funky as far as the ordering, it's because it's we, we kind of reversed it in, in edit. Uh, but uh, because that, that conversation went pretty long, we, we and there's really not that much going on as we, I mean, there, there is a lot going on, but they're all kind of fall into a couple of, couple of the same buckets. Uh, is this like the calm before the storm? Eh, I don't Hopefully I hope it's the not. calm before the calm. We'll, we'll, right. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, obviously inaugurations tomorrow, uh, all of these, you know, I, I don't know if it was because of the overwhelming police presence or because they kind of got shut down on social media or, or what the deal was, but you know, all of the major protests that were predicted to, t- to take place uh, this weekend on the 17th didn't happen. Um, you know, it, it, everything seems to be moving forward uh, without, you know, without a ton. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, it seems like everything's calmed down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're we're at a point where we can say these people are crawled back into their hole permanently. Um, But I think, you know, I I personally, I can tell you from experience with people in my own family that two weeks ago and, and the coverage, right, the videos, the things that have come out um, have served as a bit of a wake up call for people who were big Trump supporters and kind of looked at this and thought, Whoa, wait a minute. Like, I'm not, I'm not all about that. Right. So, um, but I think, you know, and hopefully with the added security that um, that we've seen go up in um, Washington and state capitals has, um, you know, kind of quashed opportunities for further violence. But um, I don't think we've heard the last of these folks, as you will get to in a bit. Yeah, right here in I, I think they, they may be changing tactics a little bit. But, uh, uh, you know, I think part, part of what's going on, though, is, is, you know, let's face it. These people are these people are idiots, Stephanie. They're it. Uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter protesters over the summer, people complain, well, why, why were all these, there weren't any arrests then? Well, people then were smart and they knew that they were, they were using tactics that m- many would find, including in some cases the law would find uh, unsavory. And they took measures such as not turning their cell phones on, covering their faces, you know, all these, these idiots were proud of it. And it is it is proving to be their downfall that one by one, these morons are getting picked off nationwide, thanks to a variety of their cell phone uh, t- data you know, from their towers, um, you Instagram posts, social Instagram media posts. In, in one case, there's a guy in Texas who threatened his kids, said trader traders get killed. You know, you better not turn me in. Well, his kids then promptly turned him in like these, these people are just they're you know, their suggestions that they were highly organized, that they were, you know, well put together in what they're doing. That may have been the case. Uh, if it was, they either have no idea how law enforcement works or didn't care about getting caught 
because they did nothing to protect themselves. And one by one, they are getting picked off. I mean, I think I think it's both. Right. I think we've seen reports of there, there was organization um, reports of, you know, they may have had some assistance from uh, some extreme right wing members of Congress. Um, there, there were some. But I think that some of the people you're referring to were people who oh, well, the doors of the Capitol are open. I am going to just walk right in. Okay. Nothing, nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, there's a guy out of Kentucky who said, I didn't do anything wrong. I just walked in. The doors were open. Right. Yeah, like, the, the, the nurse out of uh, Morgan Fields, like I'd do it again. Yeah. Um, I think though, what you also see is, okay. Yeah. There's maybe some idiocy. I mean, I'm, it's astounding at how, you know, these are the same people, by the way, right. Who, who in the same breath, won't uh, get a vaccine for flu or COVID because they think the government's microchipping, but walked right into the U.S. Capitol during an insurrection with, with their, their cell, cell phone turned rolling. on. Yeah. Turned on and recording video yeah. in some cases. Just, just... Um, but I, I think there's some idiocy there maybe by some of these people, but I think there was also a, a, an extreme sense of entitlement. Uh, and there was also an extreme level of brainwashing that this was, this was it. They were being, they, some of these people really believe that they were part of something historic, that they were part of something important, that, you know, Donald Trump told them to do it. They believe that the election was stolen. And, you know, they, they are, there is a level of righteousness. There's well, also we, a level we, of entitlement that they we, weren't we, going to get caught. We talked about it last week. They they thought that when they walked in, there was going to be like a welcoming committee to openly embrace them. Like you came, you finally came to rescue. And, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I think that they thought law enforcement was going to have that opinion of them. I don't think that they thought that the FBI was going to be showing up at their door with, with paddy wagons and handcuffs. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, one guy, one guy in Kentucky who was arrested this week. Uh, it was actually WDRB, I think led the FBI to this guy, the guy, at WTRB saw the video of him and social media. They tracked him down. It wasn't that hard to find him. He gave them an interview, uh, told them that he uh, had destroyed his SIM card and deleted his Facebook account in hopes that the FBI wouldn't find him. And obviously they have found him. Yes. Um, uh, well, I think we're up to maybe four or five arrests from, from Kentucky. Um yeah, you, know, you got a couple from Central Kentucky, of course. Any anything like this would wouldn't it wouldn't wouldn't be a ride if there wasn't a guy from Bullet County in it. Um, right. You know, uh, we have a, a UK student who was basically like, "Yeah, I did it. It was fun." On on Instagram, uh, I don't know what treason is. Yeah, I, you know, it's just it's 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 getting ridiculous. But I'm very glad to see all these people one by one slowly getting arrested. Uh, you know, I, if, if nothing else, it serves as a warning for others. Like you, you're, you're, you might get away with it in the moment, but you ain't getting away with it for long. Yeah. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, you, you're starting to see uh, rifts in the, in, in my party develop. Uh, you know, I guess. That's an understatement. Some, some would claim, I suppose that I'm doing my part in that, in that uh, role, I'm sure listeners to the program probably read the op-ed I had in the Herald Leader this weekend. Uh, I won't kind of rehash that. If you want to go read it, uh, I suggest you do. I'm pretty proud of it. I think it yeah. excellent piece. I mean, yeah. I obviously don't agree with some <laughs> ideological but, premises, but I'm not going to call it a manifesto because that's kind of a, a fraught word. But 
you know, it's, it certainly is a summation of, of my beliefs. Um, uh, so you've got kind of the, the people who are pushing back on the president on one end, and then you get the people who are going, who were, who were, who were steering into the skid. I want to talk for a minute about a gentleman named Don Thrasher. Don Thrasher is a failed county judge candidate. Uh, he is a failed, uh, Republican primary candidate in the state house race. Uh, and he is the current Nelson County, uh, Republican party chairman. And he is kind of spearheading this uh, call to have a special meeting of the Republican Kentucky Republican State Central Committee to uh, pass a resolution of some sort, basically demanding that Mitch McConnell support the president. And then, you know, kind of all the this this whole list of things, um, a couple of important things to know about Don Thrasher. First of all, uh, <laughs> sorry, I've tried so hard to keep a straight face. Here. First I of cannot all, wait for this dissertation. <laughs> First of all, for those of you who uh, who are familiar earlier in the century, uh, Paris Hilton had a sex tape come out. Well, Don Thrasher actually is the gentleman who, uh, I guess a former friend of his was featured in the sex tape with Paris Hilton. He, <laughs> featured. He stole, Did he play a starring role? Uh, yeah. He, he, I guess he must have, this, this friend must have shown... Don Thrasher, the tape, Don allegedly stole it from this guy's house, made a copy, then put the original back and then took the copy and sold it to uh, to to uh, porn vendors for fifty thousand dollars. So the guy who is fomenting the revolution against Mitch McConnell is the one responsible for leaking the Paris Hilton sex tape. I mean, any uh, anytime you can talk about the Paris Hilton sex tape in the context of politics. It's an interesting day. Uh, Truth is so much stranger than fiction. I love also this article from the Nelson County Gazette, which is a kind of a local news thing there in, uh, in Nelson County, where there was some anonymous mailers sent out attacking Don Thrasher. And he point by point went through and he being Don Thrasher point by point went through to, to dispute all of the claims that this negative mail piece had on it. Well, let me, I'm not even going to read you the, the summaries. I'm just going to read you his responses. They, they, they had the, <laughs> they had the, the point being made and then kind of a true false, you know, partially kind of that sort of thing. And then his, his explanation, I'm not even going to read you the, 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 the attack or the explanation. I'm just going to read you his responses. Now this is him attempting to defend himself and say that these claims are wrong. And it's just, all right, we got true disputed, partly true. True slash partly true, no response. True, partly true, true in part. True, true in part, true and true in part. Even in defending himself, he admits he admits to, let's see here, this is eight different restraining orders against him. Uh, recorded terrorizing women, women, terrorizing women, calling them effing cunts. Uh, uh, had a warrant out for his arrest in Oklahoma and seven warrants out in Missouri. Uh, founding a business that he claims $100 million in sales, but uh, he sold the company for $41,000 uh, to stop a lawsuit. Uh, indigent in court, claimed indigency in court. Uh, let's see here. Wait, you got to talk about, you got to talk. Six, uh, been evicted from six different apartments, has six tax liens, bankrupt twice. Uh, numerous times failed to uh, comply with court orders. 
and has filed numerous personal injury and breach of contract lawsuits. And again, in trying to defend himself, he admitted to all of this. Wait, didn't he sell? Wait, you forgot about my favorite one when he he started this, the the company to sell soft drinks and yeah, and kind of claimed it was a two hundred million dollar, a hundred million dollar company. And no, uh, but the first batch of soda that he sold. Sorry, I'm from um, Northern Pennsylvania. It's soda. <laughs> uh, apparently, the first batch of soda that he sold. Uh, like they forgot to put the stuff yeah. in it or something. They, 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 they did not. They did not put the stevia in it. Yeah. And then they wouldn't give him a refund or something. Yes. So, you know, for anybody out there, anybody out there considering signing on to this nut jobs call for a special election meeting, know who you're getting into bed with. Um, I still think it's of note. I think he's claiming that he's had 30 people sign on. Um, I think you have to have 25 RSCC members to call a special meeting. That sounds like a lot until you consider that the RSCC is made up of the of the county chairs and vice chairs of every county in the state. So there's not a chair in every state. And there's not a vice chair in every state. So you're probably talking or every county rather. So you're probably talking about 220 people or so right there. Uh, every Republican member of the state legislature is a member. The entire executive committee is a member who do not necessarily overlap with the with the county chairs. Uh, every Republican member of Congress is a member and all these state officers are members. So you're you're pushing well over 300 people on this committee uh, and he has 30. So, you know, we're not talking a, a critical mass. Nothing is going to come of it. It's just a further attempt to embarrass the party by an idiot who leaked the Paris Hilton's ex date. So uh, that's all I got to say about Don Thrasher. <laughs> Um, moving on from there, uh, only a couple other quick news stories before we, we, we get in the interview with Rick Green. Uh, interesting story I found, Stephanie. A uh, gentleman has been arrested for living in O'Hare Airport for the last three months. He, uh, that could be kind of cool, don't you? I've been to O'Hare. No, it cannot be. There's, well, there's, I mean, just living in an airport. No, I, I mean, I, I basically <laughs> I basically lived in the in the Philly airport for like a night and O'Hare for most of a day. And no, they're you, you don't want to do that. But so this gentleman, I, I guess he, he flew to O'Hare and he was supposed to fly to back home to California. And he but he, it's been it's yet to be explained as to as to how he got to O'Hare if he was so scared because he wouldn't get on the plane to go to California because he was scared of COVID. So the question is, how did he get on the plane to fly to, fly to O'Hare? I, that is unknown. Uh, but somewhere in the process, he stole a security badge that would allow him, obviously, to get into into kind of the, some of the back areas of the airports. So that's how he kind of was able to move around and and uh, and not be detected for for the three months. But yes, he he was living in O'Hare's airport for three months and uh, was was arrested this week. <laughs> so so much material for Hollywood. <sighs> I mean, and it's not it's not like we were talking about before we started recording. It's not like the the terminal the movie with Tom Hanks, because in that case, because uh, that, that is a, that is a real story. In that case, that that guy had his I think he was Iranian, maybe. And he had his pass all his like passport and visas revoked. And he was stuck in a at Charles de Gaulle because France wouldn't let him leave the airport because he didn't have a visa to be there. His passport had been suspended to go home to his country, to his country of, of, of residence. And so he was kind of stuck as a man without a country. Uh, at De Gaulle for like a couple of years. This guy just was scared of COVID. To, he had a ticket. He was scared of COVID to get in the plane and, and wouldn't get on. Decided he was just going to live in O'Hare. I don't know what his in-game plan was, but 
uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, I guess the last news story I got to get to before we get in the interview is uh, happy birthday to Dolly Parton. Yes. Uh, uh, vaccine maven. Has, gotten, has anybody checked? Has she gotten the um, COVID vaccine yet? I mean, first of well, all, she didn't well, she she partially it. fund it. Yeah, she should have been like second in line, I guess. I, I don't even know who should have been first. I would assume so. I know. I know Willie got it this weekend. Got his first shot. Yes. So, uh, you know, that's. that's I thought today there. Loretta Lynn got it. Uh, d- did she? Well, yes. Yeah, you know, Loretta Lynn. My my dad. My my dad always told me that it was it was a uh, everybody in Nashville hated the fact that the album she did with Jack White was so good because it meant people had to say good things about her. She was uh, apparently not not particularly well liked inside inside the music industry. <laughs> She's not liked well now by people on my side, isn't she? Like a kind of a trumper, and is she like married to Kid Rock or something, or they're engaged? Oh, it was. Or, it I was, don't know what kind was, of it, scheme that no, was. It was. A, it was a joke. It was a. It was so, a joke. It was okay. a social media joke. Yeah, they, they, I missed they, the punchline. Oops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, like I said, we we gonna have a very short. Uh, short news segment today uh and uh we're gonna take a quick break so i can do the editing and uh then we'll let you listen to the interview that we did with former uh career journal uh editor rick green and we only make a uh, we only make a few jokes about um joker just a couple uh so we'll be back with you in just a moment with with that interview with rick green thanks for listening all right we're back and uh, we, we've got a uh a great guest for you today. Uh, I know Stephanie's very excited about about having him on. Uh, a f- former former boss of Stephanie's. Uh, a lot of you in the political world uh, may know him. Uh, it's Rick Green, who recently departed the Courier Journal after a lengthy career with uh, with Gannett uh, Papers and a whole bunch of other publications. And uh, Stephanie, anything you want to add about Rick before uh, before we start having a chat about the the media here? I mean. One of the few editors that I think journalists liked to work for, uh, not every one of them, but for the most part, felt like they felt like the guy had his had their back and, and wanted to do real, real newspapering, uh, real journalism, that bootstrap, you know, shoelace reporting. So I think uh, I'm thrilled to have him on. I don't know if he's done too many interviews since his um fairly abrupt departure that uh, caught a lot of um, journalists and observers by surprise. So thanks a ton, Rick, for giving us some time today. Hey, it's a pleasure. It's always good to speak with you, Stephanie and Trey. I've heard nothing but good things about this podcast. So uh, when the invitation came, I'd love the chance to sit down and talk a little bit about the Commonwealth and about the political scene and and really where we go as a country, both from a a political standpoint, but also from a civility standpoint. Here we are about 24 hours or so before the inauguration of the new president, new chapter in American history. And uh, boy, it comes on the heels of a, a still unfathomable incident that happened there on the Capitol almost two weeks or so ago. So I'm looking forward to the next 45 minutes or so. Glad to be with you guys. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, uh... I'm glad you kind of, kind of kicked it off that way. Yeah, you know, I one I had a couple of things that uh, I'd sent Rick before, kind of wanted to get into. But you know, let's let's start kind of in in that general vicinity. You know, the discourse of this country has just gotten it's gotten out of control. You know, I always thought when I was the, when I worked for the party, I always thought I had I had a, a duty to be as aggressive as humanly possible as the spokesman because when you're the spokesman for the party, you're the one person really who, without consequence 
can say the negative stuff that needs to be said about about an opponent because I don't ever have to ask the voters for for a vote. Um, you know, sometimes when you're doing campaigns, you, you know, you've, you've got to there has to be contrast involved in the campaign. You can't just say, vote for me. I'm great. You know, you also you also have to say, vote for me. I'm great. And here's here's why I'm better than this other guy. And there's going to be negative involved in that. I always felt like we had a duty to a not make it personal and B to keep it, you know, with aggressive, but responsible. We always try. There were some times that you just because of the lexicon, it was unavoidable. You're going to have to use war, words like war or fight or, you know, whatever, and stuff like the sure, war on coal. Sure. Yeah. But we all, we always tried really hard to think about the words that we use to, to be, uh, you know, responsible, but man, it's just, it's gotten where those sorts of words, calling people Nazis, call, you know, uh, talking about war or fight, or, you know, we got to go just the, the, the verbiage is used. And it's, I don't, I think it's both, it's, it's both Republicans as Democrats and you see it, and cable news is especially bad, but but some in print as well. You know, I guess let's start with just talking about the kind of how, how the discourse has progressed and and a what do you feel like the driving causes have been and b what role can the media play in and what role has the media played in encouraging it? Uh, not not like cheering it on, but being a part of, of it growing. And what role do you think the media can play in helping tone it back down a little bit? Sure. So I, I often tell um, not only the staffs with whom I've worked, but also the community groups, Rotary clubs and you know, conversations with readers that we live in this golden age of storytelling. Um, over the past you know, 20 years, particularly, never before have we been able to tell so many stories told in so many ways across so many different platforms to so many readers. It's unprecedented. Our reach, uh, the voices that we have, the amplification. Of, of grid journalism, but, but also irresponsible journalism. And I think um, in particular, Trey and, and Stephanie, you know, I, I know that you've had conversations with some of our mutual friends about this in that we have seen the explosion of uh, the lack of civility that I think aligns with the explosion of what's unfolded on, on cable TV um, as well as social media. Listen, anybody who's got a smartphone and an opinion in the bowels of their home's basement or in the bedroom of their mom um, can spread and spew all kinds of negativity and lies and misinformation. Um, it's just something as crazy as what's unfolded with QAnon, but it's also something that's as blatant as what we see every night on our TV sets. Um, I'll tell you a story. My, my mom back in Ohio, I grew up in Ohio. My, my birth family is actually from Louisa. So I've got really strong feelings about Kentucky and, and the people and, and my familial roots here. Um, but my mom lives back in uh, Eastern, Eastern Ohio. Um, my mom thinks that Fox News is, is the greatest thing. Uh, and she you know, is one of those folks who will cheer on Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all those folks. Um, and that's all she watches. My mother-in-law lives here in Louisville, and um, I'm convinced that she thinks that Rachel Maddow should be sainted. Um, she is a big advocate of MSNBC, and even though she flips back and forth occasionally, she's still, her whole world and her opinions are centered around um, the, the voices that she hears on MSNBC. Um, and I think in a dichotomy, that's really, in a snapshot, that's, that's where we are as a, as a, as a country. I think that the, the explosion of, of cable TV, these political shows, 
Um, these opinionated entertainment shows, let's call them for really what they are, particularly, I think, um, coming out of the Fox network, um, as well as the explosion of all the different social media platforms has just fueled what we have seen, in particular the past, you know, the past 10 years. I think if you go back and you take a look at what was the, um, the rate of cable access for Americans during the Clinton era, uh, versus today, it's it's unprecedented the the reach of cable and, and how I think that messaging has just permeated across America and has helped fuel um, the strong feelings on both sides of the of the political aisle and what things that we have seen. Listen, I, I I I'm not a political guy. I mean, I love politics. Stephanie knows that. I love politics. Um, incredibly immersed in what's unfolding in Kentucky, but I'm not a partisan. You know, I'm still an editor at heart and I always will be, and I don't share my personal political feelings about things. Um, but there, is, there are fingers that can be, need to be and can be and should be pointed at, at both sides of the aisle. Um, I'm gravely concerned about what we're seeing as it relates to these uh, giant media organizations, particularly on, on cable that um, are for profit. Um, that are dependent upon eyeballs, dependent upon ratings, uh, dependent on the advertising support that come with those ratings. And I think that's what's fueled a retreat from the kind of journalism that Stephanie was talking about that, you know, that I care about, which I know you guys care about and appreciate. And frankly, that our, a lot of our readers demand and deserve. Um, you're being held hostage by your TV ratings because you need the advertising dollars to fuel the stock price. And it's this, it's this incredibly dangerous cyclical uh, pattern that we've gotten ourselves into as a country. And um, I think we saw it front and center last week. I truly believe that. You know, I'll, I'll say, I, I, I remember listening to Rush a little bit when Rush first started and it got kind of to the point where I didn't care that much for it. Um, I, I, listened, I watched Fox News. I probably have watched Fox News regularly and I can, well, I can tell you the minute that I stopped watching it with any regularity is they had a teaser going to break and they said, are attractive couples more likely to have girls? We have the surprising answer of a new study coming up after the break. And I thought, what, what, what the hell is this? But, you know, all, all of these, these, and you put it, I think you put it right. It's like political infotainment, the Rush Limbaugh's and I'd even, I'd even, you know, the left is a little bit different. I, I'd throw people like John Stewart in there. They start off understanding that they're entertainment and then at some point in their popularity, I don't know if it's because they get such a big following, they feel some responsibility or, you know, or what it is, or if they just believe their own hype at some point in there, they shift from understanding that their entertainment to believing that their that their news or activism of some sort. And I think that's when it takes the dangerous turn because they, they, you know, it's easy enough for the public to lose fact, lose track of the fact of their entertainment but when the hosts themselves lose track lose track of the fact of their entertainment that to me that's when you get to into, into serious issues i mean let's 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 talk a little bit about john stewart and it triggers a really fascinating memory for me i was um i think i was president publisher in des moines at the register when this happened and i was an advisor and still am with the iowa state university journalism program just a great school there in ames iowa and um met with some of the students and, you know, would try to go and be a good mentor and help, you know, help them on the journalistic front. And I remember a conversation um, with a couple of their younger students. And um, <laughs> I talked about, tell me about how you consume news, you know, and everybody's talking about their smartphone and, you know, all the different sites that they went to. But one person in particular said, you know, I really rely on um, 
the uh, the night show, the evening show, um, to to get my news. Um, John Stewart is you know is like my version of Walter Cronkite, and and it just resonated with me of thinking, okay, so here's somebody who is, I mean. I, I liked John Stewart, but let's face it, he was a two bit actor, right? I mean, he didn't he's, have a great he's, acting he's on Comedy Central. It's not even like he's pretending <laughs> no, to be on Fox News. Right. And, <laughs> and his show, his show really became, um, you know, a, a political show from a very specific point of view wrapped in comedy. And it's, it's, there are hints and touches of news in there, but it's all wrapped around commentary and entertainment. It's not news. And so, you know, when you've got that unfolding, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to point fingers at the capitalistic ways in which, you know, a Steve Colbert or others are making their money and what's driving ratings for it. You know, but it just speaks to people having very distinct views about today's political scene in this country. And it's so different from just a generation ago. And that's what that's what concerns me. How, how have you seen those issues trickle down into in, into print journalism? Because you know, it seems like uh, and, and especially, you know, the, the biggest problem I would usually have with the story, whether it was the Courier, the Herald or whatever, when I was at the party, the biggest problems I usually had weren't with the piece. It was with the title that got that got put on. And usually it wasn't even the title that got put into print. It was the title that got put online. There would be some level of disconnect from the actual content, but it was written in a in, in kind of a clickbait way sometimes. You know, have you seen those kind of issues, especially as the mid-sized papers, an issue we'll get to in a few minutes, the mid-sized papers either struggled or got snapped up by the McClatchy's and Gannett's of the world. You know, how, how have you seen those issues trickle down into in, into into your your venue? Sure. I, I mean, we've seen an evolution of time, Trey, in this whole area. I mean, I think as the internet started to unfold as mainstream journalism, um, traditional quote unquote newspapers um, became digital powerhouses, there was a notion fueled largely by you know, people at the top of these publicly traded companies. So listen, we're going to, you know, we're going to at one point determine success by the number of page views and by the number of repeat visitors and the amount of engagement and how much time people are spending with stories. So those headlines need to be snappy. They need to grab attention. You know, I, I hate the expression clickbait. I know what it is. Um, as an editor, it just, you know, you know, skyrocketed my blood pressure because that's not responsible journalism. But let's face it, you get uh, an inexperienced journalist who is charged suddenly with writing headlines on their own story, which has become the case online. And they want to write as snappy of a headline as they possibly can to draw eyeballs. Um, I, have, I have friends in the business who have long lamented that um, their overall success in the eyes of their supervisors, their editors, and those above them been determined by you know how many eyeballs they can get on the story so of course some folks are going to be irresponsible i think and um i would like to think with the maturation of of new sites on websites and in the digital space there's a greater understanding that accuracy and credibility are the things that at the end of the day are going to determine our success i have said it for years and years and years i never considered myself a digital first editor I considered myself a quality content editor first, meaning let's find great stories that nobody else has. Let's make sure we're accurate with it. Let's make sure that we've got everything right. And then, and then you leverage every single tool, every single um, 
lever you can pull at your disposal to make sure that story is shared um, around the world if you possibly can. Uh, but it starts with great content. Um, I don't care how large your digital desk is. I don't care how well you know social media and all the things that you can do on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and every other platform that's out there. If you don't have great stories, readers are going to see through it. And I think that that is a sentiment that's, that I hope and I believe is starting to be accepted by more and more editors. Um, the competition is intense. Um, we're seeing the continuation of, of places like Axios um, and, and other news sites that didn't really exist a decade, you know, eight to 10 years or so ago that's putting more and more pressure on all these newsrooms. But to your point, some of these mid-sized newsrooms across America that we're seeing too. So, you know, that's just a really long-winded way of saying, I think that we're at this pivotal moment in American history. I believe that journalists, um, that are a clear heart and are driven by the greater good are what ultimately will make a difference in where we go as a country. I truly believe that. And I don't think that's being naive. I know it's being idealistic perhaps, but I also am a, a firm believer. Um, <laughs> I've wrapped myself in the first amendment since I was a kid in high school, guys. I mean, I've been working for newspapers certain when I was a high school sophomore. I, I will go to my deathbed believing that the first amendment is, is 45 words that changed the world, right? And we have an obligation and a tremendous responsibility um, to make sure that we uphold that First Amendment and we do right by those people who helped defend it um, in generations that preceded us. So I am, I am concerned about the things that have unfolded, but then I also have had the pleasure of seeing and working with great journalists like Joe Sanka and with Philip Bailey and Chris Kenning and Joe Girth uh, Morgan Watkins and others at the Courier Journal who I know their heart. I know the kind of journalism they want to do and are delivering. And I believe that the more we really, really hold up a mirror to our communities, to our commonwealth, um, let the readers decide. I don't need Sean Hannity to shape somebody's opinion. I'm hoping that it comes from the good work generated by the Herald Leader and by the Courier Journal and by so many little small newspapers that are so important across the mountains and um, of our of our Kentucky of our state, so that's what I believe in. Well, let, let's not let's not say anything that will, bur that will boost Joe Growth's ego, please. That's 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 not that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so, Joe Growth, um, I think Joe had a little bit of skepticism when I arrived in May of 2018. You know, who's this guy? Um, you know, what's he about? What has he done? Um, you know, I I was a pretty loyal soldier in Gannett and had traveled the Gannett circuit. Um, you know, working really hard to, to build great newsrooms and great staffs and, and um, you know, just do the work that needs to be done at a time of sustainability in our pursuits of it. So Joe had some suspicion of me, I think, when I first got there. And uh, I tell you, I, I have the greatest respect for Joe. I think it's I'd like to think it's mutual. Um, boy, he's a treasure for this state. I really believe that. And I'm not sure if Joe listens to the podcast. I have a hunch he probably does. But um, you know, being able to see him shine and being able to work in tandem uh, with the folks um, in the newsroom, but particularly in Frankfurt, you know, you know, the great legendary Tom Loftus, who Stephanie, I know we both, we absolutely revere. Um, I saw it all come together, you know, in, in December of, of 19 um, with the Matt Bevan story and how we all work together so passionately and so fervently for those two or three weeks there. But Joe Girth is a, is a great treasure for the Commonwealth and, um, I, I hope he's around for a long, long time. The only you know, hate mail I have for Joe Girth is getting me assigned to the Indian Head Rock story 
for <laughs> months, which haunted me yeah. and irritated me. <laughs> you know, here's here's my parting advice to Joe um, on the last day that I was in the newsroom. And, and you need to know, you know, the Courier Journal, like so many news organizations around the country, but again, in Kentucky, um, we've not been together since the second week in March. Uh, that staff, that staff worked its absolute ass off, and I, you know, not trying to be coarse, but there's no other way to describe it. This this summer of reckoning uh, with Brianna Taylor's story and and all the ripple effects and seismic aftershocks um, of what happened there on March 13th. Uh, but we've done it. They've done it uh, remotely and and not being in that newsroom. But on my last day. Um, December 11th, I, I was in the room um, primarily just to kind of soak it up one last time and pack a couple things in, in, the, in my office. And Joe came by and we had a good chat. And my party, my party in Pearl of Wisdom to Joe was, listen, you're damn good. You're a great writer. You got astute observations. Just don't call people names, Joe. Just don't call people names. <laughs> so that was one of our ongoing editing um, tricks that we had with Joe is just like, you know, you take away you steal your thunder by calling people names. So, you know, it's, wanna, it, it, it's funny. A lot of times Joe and I will be like going at each other on Twitter. And what people don't realize is that like half the time while we're going at each other on Twitter, we're texting back and forth, like kind of laughing about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You know, so, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I'll just say this very, very quickly, Stephanie and, and, mm -hmm. and God, Steph, you've been in the journalism circles for so long and, and got somebody who I deeply respect because I remember Don't age your, me. your internship days <laughs> back when you were just a kid. Um, this is, you know, for a state that's relatively small um, in terms of population, what great journalistic legacies and traditions that we have here. You know, you know, I mentioned the Herald Leader and I mentioned the Courier Journal and a Pulitzer Prize is both of those newsrooms have enjoyed, but, you know, the work being done um, by some independent sites, you know, there's a digital site up in Northern Kentucky that I think gives us Cincinnati Inquirer. Yep, yes. yep, gives gives Cincinnati Inquirer a, a run for its money in an area that it really has kind of kind of seeded. Um, you know, I see it in the mountains. You know, the the trip that I made there in the summer of '18, I, I, I talked to some of those newsroom editors and and talked to their readers, and you know, in these news deserts which we're seeing sadly unfold across the country there's still great reliance for those newspapers. And so Kentucky Press Association, you know, a great leader there, and David, uh, just a pivotal role in, in the, what it plays in, in the state. And I have to believe, guys, I, I just have to believe, and I know that I'm kind of an eternal optimist, I have to believe that good journalism um, can change minds and, and have open minds. And, and I guess that's, that's really what I'd like to see. There's a fascinating story um, in the Courier Journal this morning, it's on CourierJournal.com, written by Chris Kinning. Chris, Chris, who I, I think is one of the most pure writers with whom I've ever worked in the in my entire career. Um, great passion for the people and the places of Appalachia. Spent what it appears to be a few days traveling around Eastern Kentucky and in the mountains to talk to people about um, the Biden inauguration and what happened two weeks ago. And just if you haven't read it, folks, I, I really encourage you to to, to find that story because. That to me is what we're up against. And, I, and again, I'm not being partisan. I've got relatives in, in, in Southern Ohio and Eastern Ohio that have the same strong convictions and feelings as what were expressed in, the, in Chris's story. Um, and I'm not judging anybody at all um, because there are those, there's their own feelings. But people are, are talking about not voting 
again. People were saying that, you know, it was a stolen election. It was rigged that I don't ever want to vote again. And God, that's just the worst thing for our democracy that can happen. Um, I believe that, you know, we need to get every single person in this commonwealth at a polling place. And I don't care if it's an R or a D or whatever, they need to be part of the conversation. So it's a great story by Chris. I hope you get a chance to read it. I want to, that's, yeah, excellent reporter. And I want to, I want to take a look at that piece. Um, I want to, I want to, you touched on so many things that I want to get to, Rick. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about with your mom. You know, I'm less, I'm less worried at this point in time. I think all of us are about, you know, college kids watching Jon Stewart or Stephen Mm -hmm. Colbert than I am my in-laws and my mother, you know, watching um, conspiracy theorists on YouTube. I mean, we're past the point with some of the people that I know of Fox News being the worst of it, right? These people are watching um, cranks on YouTube. Uh, They're, you know, watching Oanon and Newsmax. And, you know, I I hear your ideology. It's the same Rick Green we've all known and loved. But how do you actually get, how do we get people back to reading credible journalism? Because I, I read a story recently, it was about a study that was done that looked at, you know, a lot of the media that is out there on social media the, that's being linked to is free. Things like right. Breitbart. You don't have to have a subscription to Breitbart, right? right. right. Uh, the credible media uh, has to feed its reporters. Um, so it's not free. And, and that has, um, I think, contributed in a small way, at least to the, you know, the, 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 the shift to wanting to consume this um, lack of credible media. All of that's a long-winded way into this question uh, that keeps me up at night. You know, I haven't been able to celebrate Trump going away tonight because I don't think that the conditions that gave us Trump have gone away. They've worsened. Um, I, I want to understand, like my grandfather who passed away this year, he was an old school factory guy, blue collar worker, rural Pennsylvania, Appalachia. He came home at night from the factory job, five o'clock shower, sat down with the evening newspaper uh, then watch the six o'clock news, the six thirty news, and you know, wheel and Jeopardy. Um, right. I, I don't see um, my parents doing that. They're not reading their local paper. They're not watching the local news. They're getting their news. They don't know how to judge the credibility of information. How do we get those people off of this garbage and back into credible journalism? Do I need to buy my in-laws a subscription to their local paper? I mean, what? how do we get people back to credible journalism? You know, well, first, absolutely. Most definitely, you got to support the local journalism so they know the news that's going on in their hometown. And Sean Hannity sure as hell isn't going to be talking about it, right? Um, Stephanie, I mean, what you're asking is, is, you know, the $840 billion question that everybody's wrestling with right now. I don't know what the tipping point is. I And I... And I say that with great concern, but with with honesty, um, I don't see these publicly traded media companies retreating from the ratings and suddenly seeing the light of day and saying, "Okay, now we're going to be, you know, completely holistic in our reporting. We're going to put commentary on the shelf or in only specific times and not make it our incredible, you know, daily staple. Um, I'm concerned about what's unfolding across the country. And, 
And if you ever had any doubts about that intersection between media and politicians and their followings, um, you're spot on. What we saw on January 6th and, and the videos that have emerged, you know, almost daily, sometimes hourly in the two weeks since then, um, it should be a grave concern. And I don't care if you're a Republican, a Libertarian, a Democrat, a Socialist, Independent, whatever you may be. Anyone who is an American needs to be concerned about what unfolded in that insurrection and the language that was used, the acts that were taken, the disregard for country and constitution. I, that's my, my personal belief in that. Um, we've not reached yet the tipping point stuff. And, and I think that should keep all of us awake. And I, and I would like to think that- Rick, I wanted some optimism here. <laughs> I, I, and I, and I, I can't offer it to you in there. I mean, let's face it, we, you know, I think that journalists have even greater obligation and honesty to truth squad stories and to call bullshit whenever certain theories emerge or certain lines of thought come from the bowels of the internet and some of these highly you know, non-credible sites and stories that emerge with it. We've got to continue to do our job. We have to work even harder than ever to turn on the flashlight, to cast open the windows and let the sunlight come in and show the truth and be the antiseptic that we know the great media should be. We need to work even harder with that. But at the same time, Stephanie, I think there are forces of discontent that are gonna to continue to fuel the feelings that are out there. Um, it's so scary when you go and you listen to these voices that took over the Capitol building for those 41 minutes or so um, two weeks ago. And you know, there are our neighbors. There yeah. are some of them are our relatives. Some of them are a highly respected individuals in our community who have viewpoints. And again, I don't think it's, it's a matter of being a Republican or a Democrat. It's just not believing in the political system and believing in the American way. And so, you know, you know, is there optimism for me? Of course, I'm always going to believe in the First Amendment. I'm always going to believe in the power of great, meaningful, uh, revelatory journalism that is fair and is accurate and credible. What concerns me is when you have players who don't play by those rules, who put profits above content, who put um, a premium on discontent in the pursuit of ratings over the truth and accuracy. Um, I, I'm, I'm really worried about where it might go um, because I'm not seeing the same sense of unity. I'm not feeling the same kind of messaging coming from any place from, from you know, Eastern Kentucky to Frankfurt to Washington, D.C. that we saw and we felt on 9-11 as a country where oh, there was sure. that sense, you know, where we all came together and we were we were rallied in our grief and united in let's figure out how this happened who's to blame and let's let it never happen again. i've been saying i've been saying it for a long time i think if 9-11 happened today uh politicians on the extreme right people uh in rural america would say well those you know those elitist new yorkers deserved it you know I, it wouldn't you wouldn't well, see anything I, I i i think i think you're probably over oversell it because I, I, I think the difference was is that that was that was foreigners who looked different than us and believed different from us that that, that perpetrated that attack and this this attack's just harder to deal with because rick like you said it, it is it is our neighbors and our relatives that that perpetrated this who were who've been brainwashed by 
uh, you know, as, as I referred to him in the uh, in, in the Herald Leader this weekend, a, a, a two bit wannabe dictator. Uh, you know, who's who is, you know, I, I will say one thing you know, for media. I think one positive step that, that the media can take, and you know, Rick, I, I don't know, if, I don't remember when the timeline was that it happened at the Courier, uh, but I was very critical for a while once Joe uh, Girth moved from reporter to columnist that his his pieces were appearing just in the body of the paper, right? Uh, which you know, I think one of the biggest problems is whether it's cable news or print, sometimes there's not enough of a line of demarcation between what is opinion, what's a column versus what's, you know, this is a reporter reporting news. And, and I think some, sometimes we forget, we get in this bubble, we forget that just a random person pick up the paper, reading it at home, doesn't always know that, Oh, this piece is opinion. And this piece is, is, is news. And I think, you know, more of a line of demarcation is something positive that the press can do to, to help remind people that this is this and this is news. Absolutely. They're, they're different. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Trey. Uh, Vita Morgan, who oversees the opinion section at the Career Journal and, and directs the work by Joe, she and I both came together. I can't remember sometime, sometime in early 19 or early 2020 and moved Joe to the opinion page for that very same reason. And I think you'll see in a lot of different digital sites where opinion is clearly marked before the headline. So people have a sense of, you know, knowing that, you know, this is an analysis piece, this is a commentary piece. But, you know, here's the, here's the thing that's, that's fascinating to me. Um, and we were talking a little bit about this before, before the podcast began. Um, I'm, a, I'm an incredibly, one, one childhood passion remains besides journalism. And that's my love of, of Ohio State football. You know, <laughs> born, born and bred a Buckeye. I immediately know that the Buckeyes won or lost. What I immediately turn to in my respective digital sites um, covering Ohio State football during you know, an, a, a fall Saturday is analysis. I want to know other people's thoughts on what I just watched and what went beyond the score. And you're seeing that, you know, you know the Wildcats lose. Here are five quick observations that, you know, we, that John Hale might have from the Courier-Journal. Um, we, we are, as a, as a society, I mean, say what you want about technology and about media and all those things. The single greatest invention that has reshaped our entire lives is one I, I've got right in front of me. And, and that's, you know, my handheld smartphone mini computer where instantaneously all of us can know the score of the Ohio State football game. And then immediately we want to know why they won, how they lost, who was the star, what was the big play, and what was everybody's take. That's how we are as a, as a community now of, of readers globally, but particularly in the United States, is that um, we know who won the election. Well, maybe we don't. I guess there are some people who, who still might not know who won the election, but they all are desperate to find out the analysis, the commentary, the winners, the losers. And, and that's what I think is fueling all of this. Um, again, guys, I'm going to come back to what I said at the beginning of this. We live in the golden age of storytelling. Never before have so many been able to tell so many stories in so many ways on so many platforms at an unprecedented time in, in our world history. Um, Stephanie, I think in the mix of all of that, there will be meaningful, insightful, revelatory, clear-eyed, objective journalism that will hopefully drive that agenda. What we all have to worry about, not just as journalists or consumers of news and information, is how do we convince folks that 
what you were reading is accurate and fair and unbiased versus some of the things that you're finding from other non-mainstream sites um, or other folks that have got agendas that are just supercharged to find dissent and um, drive the wedge between all of us. And, and, and hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not such a, you know, a Tom Clancy fan to disbelieve the fact of the, of the role that outside forces play in all of this. We saw it in the 2016 mm -hmm. election with the Russians. Now there's talk about, you know, the Chinese involvement. You know, social media, hey, it's great to find all those old high school girlfriends and classmates from high school on Facebook and, and the time. But you guys, we have got to be incredibly attuned to the fact that there are outside forces that have no love and affection for anything in our constitution, let alone our country, that are looking to weaken us. And we know that those players are finding their sweet spot in the digital space. Um, and it's scary. And it's, it's you know, it's Stephanie, I, I don't know what that tipping point is going to be. If not what we saw last, you know, two weeks ago doesn't scare the hell out of all of us as, as Americans, then I'm not sure what will. And I guess that's what, you know, what we'll all have to kind of continue to think about as we move into this new administration and, and we look for the next, the next chapter in American history. Well, let's talk real quick, going kind of back to what you said about, uh, you know, the, the role to, to present the news in a non-biased, uh, you know, kind of non-opinionated way. There, there is this, this new thing. I think that it kind of got exposed really heavily at the New York times specifically over the summer, you know, where you've, we do have a younger generation of journalists coming out of journalism school who believe that they have a duty based basically about to be a, a journalist and an activist. You yeah. know, how, how do you, how do you see that jiving? Cause that's, you know, that's one of the things that I hear the most of from, you know, cause obviously by and large, I'm not going to say all, but you know, generality uh my, my 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 side of the aisle are are not the ones that are being uh <laughs> not the ones that are that are being represented coming out of coming out of journalism school yeah uh yeah. you know how, how do you how do you see that affecting where kind of where we're at advocacy journalism that's i think that's the the phrase that you're looking for trey yeah um boy i tell you one of trying to be thoughtful in how I express this um, because I, I, I love the team that we built in Louisville, the Courier Journal. Um, I'm a, I'm a 50 something white guy from, from Ohio. And despite my best interests and my relationships personally and professionally um, and, and working incredibly hard to understand everybody's experiences, my world is limited to to what I was raised in and, and the experiences that I've had as a person, as a professional. Um, I can't, I can't imagine the heartache and the heartbreak that so many felt um, as this whole Breonna Taylor story unfolded. And again, I'll never share my personal feelings. I will never share the thoughts that I have about police and about all the things that have unfolded. That's not my role. I will always be a journalist and, and walk that line. But what's important is trying to make sure that the staff of those journalists um, remember the rules of engagement as it relates to putting aside their own personal feelings and experiences and just trying to stick to the facts of, of that story and so many other stories that emerged over the summer. Um, credibility, 
and accuracy and fairness, you know, those are the, those are the things that we wrap ourselves in and go to sleep at, at night whenever we are in um, mainstream media, you know, in a, in a place like Lexington or Louisville uh, in those newsrooms. Um, you know, we had to, and we continue to, you know, across, I can just speak to Gannett because of my personal experience there, um, you know, reminders about social media, reminders about the things you can and the things you cannot say, um, knowing that you sacrifice some of that independence of thinking whenever you decide, you decide that you want to be a journalist in a, in a newsroom that is, um, you know, trying to walk that tightrope of objectivity. Trey, I, I see it, and I've seen it from, you know, the different college newsrooms that I've gone to through over the years where, you know, there's that fine line of the Woodward and Bernstein model of, I want to go in journalism because I want to change the world. I want to, I want to do meaningful investigative work that makes a difference and rights wrongs and holds those in power to account and, and all of those to gotcha journalism that's emerged in, in personal feelings. And there's, there's a role for all of that. It's just gotta be in the right job and sometimes in the right um, news site, the, the right media site. But the conflict that I think that we're all going to experience in particular, um, in particular after this summer is the notion of this advocacy journalist and, and and working incredibly hard and very personally with people of saying, you know, you, you just you just can't say that on your Facebook page. You just can't tweet that reaction because, you know, we'll go back to the Joe Girth model. Joe Girth is an opinion columnist, but you know, there are reporters that I don't care about their opinion. I'm sorry, I need you to report the news. That's not your job. Um, that all feeds into the whole notion of credibility, Stephanie, that, you know what's going to help us in the next few years, try to get some sense of, of reality-based, um, you know, civility in this country again, you know, being really thoughtful about the role that journalists play and, and doing your very best to hold on to those personal feelings that you might have. It's, boy, it's a, it was the, the hardest and trickiest tightrope um, this past summer. And for reasons that I've just explained, um, but yet, Trey, you're, up you're, one, you're on. I, I want to offer up one additional point there to that topic, and that is, you, you mentioned two types of journalists, you know, advocate journalists, and then just sort of journalists that want to change the world. Um, you know, back when I was a journalist, I saw a number who really just wanted to let both sides, they, they almost viewed themselves more as, uh, you know, transcriptionists. Like I'm going to yep. let yep. this yep. person have theirs. And I think that is almost as problematic today as the other extreme, the maybe the advocacy journalist, because, you know, I think for too long in the buildup to where we're at now with just outright mis and disinformation out there, there were a lot of reporters who viewed themselves as doing nothing more, have, should not do, not trying to change the world, not expose truth. You wouldn't have, I, you would not have won a Pulitzer if you had a pack of journalists who only viewed their role in that way. And so it is an incredibly difficult challenge to, you know, walk that, that line, I think, and find the, the journalists who, you know, can agree to some boundaries, but also uh, want to do more than just uh, he said this and she said this in response. Um, 
the other thing I want to add, I know we're getting short on time, but I just, this is really pressing on me, not add, I just want to talk about briefly, you know, as a former journalist, it has been so crazy for me to watch over the last four years, but really the last year, especially in Louisville, um, you know, the, the extreme pressures on these journalists between the stress of, of the furloughs and the economic concerns from the click pressures, right? Writing stories yep, that yep, will get yep. eyeballs it's to it's the small, demands. Small newsrooms. Yeah, to the demands mm-hmm. of doing the multimedia, right? Not just reporting yep. the story, but now I got to do video. I got to cut the video. I got to take my own photos. I got to manage social media. The social media threats. I mean, oh my God, I would have gotten fired as a reporter because there's no way I can just stomach the abuse. <laughs> the abuse. I know, the, I know. The, host, the hostility, not just from the crazies, but the hostility these journalists um, are met uh, with from people like Matt Bevan and Robert Stivers, who has always been um, real prickly with um, journalists. Um, how, and, and just the, the hours and the load, I mean, there were times that I was like, I don't know how you're journalists. I mean, it was like drinking from a fire hose, right? From right, right. summer covering Absolutely. the Breonna Taylor um, uh, protests and just doing the, the, the investigative work to covering mm-hmm. COVID. Um, how, what is that, what has that been like for you as kind of trying to manage these folks through it? What's it been like for them? What have you done to try to address, you know, the, the, the wellness and the self care and the mental health for these folks? Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned it earlier, and I and again, it sounds self-serving, and I'm not I'm not that way. I, I'd like people to to hear this from a, a humanistic standpoint. Um, I have great respect for the first line, frontline responders, and the medical teams, and all the great folks that have been you know so intimately involved in the pandemic. I I just can't even put into words my respect for those folks, and they're like. But I will tell you that seeing it firsthand from mid March. Um, through, you know, through mid-December before I left, that people have no idea the absolute hell. So many journalists, not only in Louisville, but around the state and around the country have endured um, the personal attacks, the, the physical attacks of, you know, covering the protests that unfolded in the spring and in the summer um, of reaction from law enforcement. Obviously, we've seen, you know, um, the threats that continued um, even two weeks ago, you know, murder the media was uh-huh. scrawled on one of the doors, murder the media. I mean, this is where we are as a country. Um, this, this, isn't, uh, this isn't about me. It, it's about the 63, 64 other journalists that I work with at the, the Career Journal, the long hours and, and the absolute hell so many of them went through um, to tell the stories, um, you know, I have a lot of a, a lot of sadness in, in making the decision to leave, but one of the greatest sorrow is you know not seeing them in action on a day in a day out basis, because I have the most utmost respect for them. And, and so you know when you're the the leader of a of a team, no matter what kind of a team you are, I, I always believe that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and that sounds kind of hokey maybe for some, but I believe that's what helped us throughout the, spring, the summer and the autumn is that. You know, we emphasize the need, you know, don't be afraid to find um, employee assistance um, if you want to talk about your emotions. Let's be sensitive to people's long hours and, and trying to give people a break. And, 
doing everything you can to, to relieve the pressure on some of the editors who, you know, were, were feeling it on so many different levels too. Um, it, 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 it was, and it has been, and will continue to be a hell of an important job, not only in the Commonwealth, but around the country. Um, I've got friends and colleagues that I know in newsrooms everywhere that are congregating in Washington right now. And um, some of them are wearing flak jackets. Some of them have gas masks with them. Um, some of them have gone through training sessions about survival and how to basically confront a potential dangerous situation of protesters and rioters and insurrectionists um, come after you. Um, guys, these are things they don't teach you in journalism school. Not unless you're signing up to do war reporting. Yeah, absolutely. And even then, it's, it's not quite the same. I mean, I, I know... <laughs> I know from my own family, I know from my own personal experiences, as well as, you know, a career that's, you know, more than 35 years. Um, I know that this profession, as integral as it is to American democracy, is also a lightning rod for so many people. What concerns me now is the, the utter vitriolic response to when you say I'm a reporter um, by some people. And um, I'm not sure what my next steps will be and you know, different options, you know, things that you're wanting to consider and where you want to do it. And, and, and I'm blessed in that regard, but um, I will always be a journalist at heart and I will always do whatever I can to make sure that that first amendment, that light never, never stops shining brightly because that's what I think Stephanie um, is ultimately going to be the North star that gets us through this, this very uncertain chapter in American history. I, I believe that with my whole heart. What's your dream, Rick? What, like, what's your, if, if you could, you know, Ohio, have any State, gig. Ohio State football head coach, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's, no, no, that's not a shot. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd love to run, I'd love to run my own media company and do it the way that I think it should be done. Um, you know, both sides of the story, you know, straight arrow journalism, smart, sharp commentary, um, that's pragmatic and it's editorial voice. Um, the entrenchment that I see in Frankfurt, and again, this is, this is not me being partisan. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to show me being a Republican, Democrat or whatever, but just as a citizen, as a taxpayer, the entrenchment of positions, there are so many important issues in this Commonwealth that don't involve the second amendment and don't involve abortion. Absolutely. There That's are what Trey and I are all about. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are generations of children who have not had jobs. We have seen the incredible taxing of the, of the, public, um, of the public system of assistance um, in this commonwealth. Um, our health, our education, our general welfare. You know, we rank so low on so many of these different scales of comparisons to other parts of the country. Um, how, how wonderful would it be to be a driving force for positive change um, in a commonwealth that certainly deserves it, where you're thinking about things that truly matter in a meat and potatoes around the dining room table conversations every morning that don't involve abortion or the Second Amendment. I mean, I have, you know, I, I'm getting a little carried away, but that's what, that's what, you know, my dream is, is to be able to be in charge of a media organization that really tackles those substantive issues, um, focused in on making Kentucky better. How do we build a better Kentucky? Um, God, that's, that's something I would that love I to see that. happen. So, 
Yeah. Rick, Rick I, w- I want to get you out of here on one last thought. I- I'm going to, I'm going to say something. I'll let you comment on it and we'll, then we'll let you, let you get on with your day. You know, one of the things that always kind of frustrated me, but, but also uh, to be honest, put me in a invaluable position when I was working in Frankfurt is, you know, the, the lack of relationship that some elected or some elected officials and some political operatives, some staffers, the lack of relationship that they allow themselves to have with the press. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can only think of, I'm, there was only one reporter whose whose phone calls I wouldn't return. And I flat called his editor and explained why. I, you know, I felt like my reasons were justified and said, "You have other reporters at your outlet. Please have them call me from now on." It was not yours. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but you know, I I, I I always sought to develop a relationship with people. And you know, Tom Loftus would call me about once a week and just say, "Hey, what's going on?" Uh, yep. You know, Joe Girth and I could text jokes back and forth while we were yelling at each other on Twitter. Uh, you know, Philip Bailey's become a pretty good friend of mine. Um, you know, even Joe Sanka, who he and I have had personal run-ins before he started working at the Courier. You know, we we can still uh, trade stuff back and forth. Uh, you know, I always felt like the you, you get there's there's more benefit to being, if not friends, at least cordial with these guys than than uh, attacking them. You know, we have a lot of elected officials, a lot of staffers, a lot of lobbyist types that that listen to the show. If you could give them one message uh, as far as having putting together a relationship with the press um that that you know the, the off the record relationship that allows more trust to create better on the record content you know what would be the message you would want to give to to those guys yeah you know um i i've always believed that we win with people um and my my tenure as a reporter and carried over as an editor no matter where i was was built around relationships in the community um, listen, you might not always like everything that we write. You might have a difference of opinion with an editorial. You might have um, you know, a, a personal beef with somebody, but it's got to be built around respect. And as I think across our country, and, and this is not confined to just journalism, guys, but um, the days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting together and closing the doors and making things happen um, are over say what you want about Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton on both sides of the political aisle. Everyone's got their own distinct thoughts about it. There were some incredibly positive things that unfolded um, when they both were in power um, in this country because they found ways to overcome their differences and find common ground. We have to, in this Commonwealth and in this country, we have to find more common ground and greater trust um, if we're going to move forward. Um, There are amazing journalists in this state um, and there are some folks who might have their own personal agendas. Um, there are some incredibly smart and insightful and um, broad thinking politicians in this state who really do want to pursue the greater good. And there are others who have just a very narrow um, self, self-minded approach to politicking um, and leadership. Trust your reporters. Reporters, you've got to trust some of the politicians. You've got to find common ground. We all have important jobs to do. Um, you talked about Bev and Stephanie. Um, you know, we we were able to tell that story because we were dogged. We knew that this was a story that no one else was going to tell, and I'll be damned if we were going to give it up to any other media site right, in our state or around the country. Um, and we did that with tenacity, but with also a clear-eyed approach to what's the truth, what do the records show, what are people saying about it. Um, Trey, I, I'm, I am going to end this on an optimistic yep. note. 
Um, Absolutely. I believe, I believe in the First Amendment. I believe that at the end of the day, people in Frankfurt that are elected and those that are not elected are going to be motivated by the greater good. Um, we have this unbelievable potential in the Commonwealth um, and around the country um, to be better than what we are in every way in which you measure us. Um, and I would like to think that that's ultimately what's going to drive us in the years ahead and not this petty bickering and focus on issues that aren't going to make a big difference in the lives of Kentuckians. Um, let's give people opportunities and chances um, and let's try to find the good in what it is that we try to do, both journalistically as well as politically. I believe that that can happen and if that is, uh, maybe we can become a model for civility in the United States as opposed to being a poster child for educational lapses, for health concerns, for abusing our children and all the other negative um, facts that define the state right now. Um, I'd like to say that I live in a better Kentucky and I think there are a lot of people out there that would like to say the same thing. All right. Well, Rick Green, thank you for coming on the podcast with us today. We really appreciate the conversation. Hey, you guys. Thanks an awful lot. Stephanie, thank you so much, Rick. Use Thank that you. sunscreen, okay, kid? We've <laughs> gone through seven bottles. <laughs> oh, my God. I really Cost a fortune. Guys. Let's, yeah, let's do it again. All right. Thanks, thanks so thanks, much, Rick. Rick. It was awesome. As, as, always, as always, you can get us wherever you stream podcasts. If you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a review. And we'll be back with you on Thursday with our guest, Dave Baker. We'll talk some uh, UK sports and some politics uh, with, with Dave. And uh, we'll see you on Thursday on another Kentucky Politics Weekly.